It's fair to say that for the sake of kids and the sake of their working parents and the economy in general, schools need to be open. But it's also fair to say that a lot of people, from parents to kids to teachers to principals and doctors, are going to be pretty anxious over the next few weeks as students return and as we start to see COVID-19 in classrooms because it is impossible to keep the virus out completely. And anxious people have questions. And yes, there are a lot of guidelines out there for how to safely bring kids back to school. But every single school is different. And not all schools can follow those guidelines exactly. So those questions need to be answered and quickly. And a new program started in Toronto's East End aims to match teachers and administrators with doctors and hospital staff who can give them advice and give them answers that are specific to their situation. Answers to things that aren't covered in the guidelines. So what are those questions? What are teachers asking as their kids return to class? What can be done when physical distancing inside seems impossible? What can be done when kids balk at wearing masks? When hundreds of kids need to enter a small school with only two doors and almost no outdoor space? Those are the things they're asking, and we'll get those answers today. We'll also get a report from the front lines of a hospital as cases rise in Ontario. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Dr. Janine McCready is an infectious disease physician at Michael Guerin Hospital in Toronto, where she leads the program we're discussing today. Hello, Dr. McCready. Hi. Um, the first question I have for you, because I ask it anytime we talk to somebody working in a hospital right now, is how are you guys doing? How's morale there? How's your ER and et cetera? Um, I think we're doing pretty well right now. I mean, we're a very hardworking and resilient bunch here uh, at Michael Guerin. Um, I think in the last couple of weeks, and especially this week, it has been... Um, a little bit alarming and, and concerning to see the numbers rising faster than any of us would have liked. And so we're really starting to put some of the plans back in place to ramp things back up for the fall uh, to make sure that we can stay, uh, stay ahead of the numbers. Um, but we're overall, you know, everyone's working hard and, and doing their best here. We're now um, in some places in Toronto anyway, in the second week of back to school. And, you know, from your point of view, uh, as somebody who's probably watching this very closely, how has it gone? How do you feel about the plan? I, I mean, I have mixed feelings, I think. On one hand, I'm still cautiously optimistic that if we can, you know, turn things around with the community numbers and keep them low and really implement a lot of the prevention strategies that we know will work to open schools safely, uh, that we can do that and we can keep the numbers low. But on the other hand, you know, we have started to see numbers kind of across many of the provinces outside of Atlantic Canada starting to rise. And we know that as those numbers rise in the community, uh, we will see COVID cases in schools. So it will be more challenging to prevent the spread of COVID within schools. Um, so I think, you know, in, in Alberta, for example, they've started a bit ahead and here in Ontario in some places, we've certainly seen some cases introduced, but few outbreaks, which is very encouraging, but I think we definitely need to stay on top of it. And there's going to be a, a learning curve for everyone because this is definitely new. And, and we have to recognize there'll be some disruptions to, to school and to class. But, uh, you know, I, I, I'd like to continue to be cautiously optimistic. Uh, and, and I think the, the real, you know, it'll be big test with TDSB going in this week, the biggest, one of the bigger boards, uh, to see how, how that goes. 
When you say, you know, we're we're kind of learning as we go here, how much of this is uncharted territory? Because uh, in many places in Canada, except I think Quebec, schools went out for March break and never came back. So what are we um, going to be finding out over the next uh, coming days and weeks? So good question. I mean, we do know a lot from other jurisdictions of what worked. And I mean, I think a lot of the things that worked in places like Denmark and um, Norway, places that had low rates, is that low community transmission will prevent school outbreaks. And also this package of, of all the infection control strategies that we know work in other places, like physical distancing, wearing masks, screening to prevent people coming in. We know those things can work. But I think actually implementing them on, uh, you know, on a school level in a realistic way is, is where I think a lot of the learning needs to happen. Um, I mean, SickKids just released some of their um, preliminary findings from a simulation they did in schools here in Toronto. And I think that, you know, that is helpful, um, but it was just a few day simulation. So I think that's a, st- a good starting point, but really we're going to have to see how each school adapts and he- how each uh, each individual environment is a bit different and then how we can make, you know, iterative improvements. So even if we're seeing, um, you know, hopefully not COVID right away, but you know, some sniffles and things like rhinovirus right. or other back-to-school coughs and colds, that we'll be able to find that right away and then make changes to, to prevent other spread within the classes. So um, I think just knowing that the big picture, the things that we need to do are, are fairly clear, but how do we actually make that happen on each individual school basis? Well, how are you planning to do that? Because here's why we wanted to talk to you and, and this program uh, that you're a part of involves a lot of direct communication um, with schools. So what are you seeing um, or hearing, I guess, from teachers and administrators about what they don't have or, or are worried about? Yeah, great question. I mean, I, I think... I think there there's a you know a very a big variety in in how teachers feel and and certainly how the principals feel, um, and they're they're getting a lot of advice from different sources and and from their boards, which is great. But I think what we're being able to do and and help is that we're able to try to translate that guidance that they're receiving and really put the knowledge that we have from living and breathing COVID for the last, you know, six to eight months and help to really adapt, adapt that information to the local situation. Um, So, you know, for example, things like our school has two entrances and we have 800 kids that go in and out and we have limited outdoor space and there's, you know, 3000 people that with parents and siblings and everyone that come to our backyard to drop off kids in the morning and the afternoon. Like, how do we actually screen everyone and get them in? Um, And so that kind of school with everyone living in high rise buildings surrounding it, the approach is going to be obviously very different than to to entry and dismissal than a school where everyone lives in a single family dwelling and there's a big area in the in the back schoolyard where you can easily spread places out so I think that uh, you know it's they have a lot of support in terms of the guidance and what they know they need to do but then how do you actually put that into action so we're hearing a lot of that and I think because this is new going back for for most teachers there is a lot of anxiety and I think that's totally reasonable and expected. And we're able to kind of share our experience of how we kept healthcare workers in the hospital safe and share that so that they, you know, they feel supported. They don't feel alone. And I I think it 
means it's a different, uh, it's different coming from someone, you know, independent that's kind of lived through the first wave in the hospital as compared to coming from your employer, for example, where, you know, you, it's, it's not that they should trust me more or, but it's just a different perspective. And I think for, for some people, uh, it helps to be able to pose correct questions directly to someone like me or a primary care physician that they're working with, um, to get, uh, to get a, kind of a different or more fulsome answer to some of their questions. So tell me uh, exactly how the program works and and what it does then. Great. So, I mean, there's a few different... components to it that we've tried to uh, to provide support for the schools. So the first thing that we started doing was virtual town halls uh, with some principals some teachers and the school support staff uh, within the hospital's catchment area. So back in about mid-August, we reached out first to kind of higher priority schools, so schools that we had identified that are in the first wave, we, were, we saw higher incidences of COVID-19 and places that would be higher risks for spread uh, within the community. So places that have lower socioeconomic status, um, families that are multi-generational. So if you have a kid that had COVID, they'd be more likely to bring it home and spread it to, you know, grandparents, aunts and uncles, more, more of a spread versus if you're in a kind of a single family dwelling, you know, that's obviously you don't want anyone to get it, but the, the risk of spread broadly is lower. So we started with the priority schools one week and then uh, the next week actually extended to all the schools within our catchment area and allowed them to basically just send in or ask questions on the, the live um, virtual meeting. Um, And, and I, and I answered them. And then we also had just some kind of, I I reviewed some literature to support them and kind of larger concepts um, just to, to kind of give them some overall information. So that was the first thing we started doing. And then in addition to that, um, we've created kind of a hub and spoke model that we are kind of buddying the family physicians and community health centers to uh, the higher priority schools within our area. So we have about 15 schools that we've identified that are a bit different than the schools that TDSB has declared as high priority and that they've given, you know, different class sizes to. Um, And we've linked them with a family physician so that the principal or the vice principal has kind of a direct person that they can pose questions to. And then that person obviously can link up with me and my team so we can actually provide more support or, um, you know, as things go. Uh, and then the third part is really to support testing. So we're, we have an on-site assessment center here at Michael Guerin, which has been running since March. But when we've off and on have had some pop-up sites where we've seen higher needs in the community. So we plan to open two pop-up sites in uh, local neighborhoods that are more higher priority areas in, in school communities. So one right actually this week, uh, it's going to be open for about two, starting with two weeks to see what the need is. And then another in another uh, higher risk area a little bit later on. Um, so bringing the testing to the communities. Um, and then, you know, with this, we're obviously working with uh, the schools and with Toronto Public Health to identify if there are schools where we're seeing cases, then we can work with them to provide mobile testing if needed as well. So those are the kind of the three main things. And then I'm building a team here as well that we're able to, you know, in conjunction with in collaboration with Toronto Public Health, be able to provide an more support to schools if we're identifying that, um, you know, they're having more issues and that they need more on-site support as well. Uh, you gave me a great example earlier uh, of how you would kind of support a school that had, you know, only two uh, entrances and exits and, and a ton of people needing to get in. And I think stories like that, that, 
give real world examples of situations that that doctors are worried about are, are really helpful. Can you offer another example or two of of things that teachers or administrators ha- have asked you about, like just like how do I do this on the ground? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think a big one is mask wearing. So, um, in you know, it's. It's very dependent on the the class, the, the age of the kids you're teaching, um, and and you know the developmental level of those kids. So teachers have questions about, well, how am I going to get the kids to wear the masks? What about mask breaks? How often do we, you know, should we plan to do a mask break? How do I do a mask break? Can we do mask breaks in the class? Do we have to go outside? And then just the logistical issue of, well, when the kid takes their mask off, where do they need to put it? You know, can they hold it in their hands, set it down, wear it on the wrist? There's people are making lanyards or there's fanny packs and there's, you know, does every, what, what do we actually do? Do in a real life situation, and when kids go outside, can they take those off? Um, when they go outside for gym class, can they take them off? And then, and then, just even what are the things that we need to focus on in terms of wearing our mask properly? So, you know, it's we all know the there's like the very formal video of how to put your mask on and off, and and what healthcare workers follow. But when you're dealing with a five year old, you know, we've got to focus on the the priorities and what's realistic. So I think there's been a lot of questions around that because the teachers also don't want to feel like they're kind of the personal protective uh, equipment police all day, right? They want to be able to make sure the kids are safe, but also at some point, hopefully be able to focus on what they're really good at, which is, you know, teaching our, our, um, all of our kids. So um, that's been a, a big area. And then you know, things like interpreting physical distancing. So we've all heard, you know, two meters is the ideal distance apart. Um, but if that's not possible, then, you know, is one meter useless or what does that mean? And so we've talked about how it's really a gradient where the more space you can have, then that does, it provides additional protection um, and thinking about creative ways to set up the classroom so that you can add more space. So if you have, you know, twins in a class, uh, you can actually sit them together. Those, those, though they don't need to be separated because they're going to spend their, their whole life together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you can, that will provide you with extra room in the class to, to separate other kids a little bit further. So, and thinking about, you know, cohorting kids like that. So if you have um, siblings or people that are, you know, are spending time together outside of school, then those kids can be, uh, you know, cohorted together within the class. On a personal note, actually, uh, since you mentioned it, how do you get a toddler to wear a mask? So, so I actually, yeah, I have, I actually have a toddler, a three-year-old. And so I I was concerned or didn't know how this was going to go, but she's actually fantastic at wearing a mask. And I think the biggest thing that I realized was making sure that it fit properly. So we tried, uh, you know, a few different masks before we found one that worked. And then with, I mean, to be very practical, um, the, the ear loops I find with some of the little ones, sometimes they're fine, but other times they fiddle with them and they don't fit right or it bothers their ears. So I just attached uh, an old pair of nylons I cut up into strips and stretched it out a bit and just attached that over the back of the ear loop so it kind of sits at the top of her head just on top of her ponytail, doesn't slide down. And once she's got it on, she doesn't even notice it. And it's actually... uh, it's uh, once we discovered that obviously not every kid is the same and she's the daughter of an infectious disease doctor so she she knows uh, why masks are important but I, I think that the the fit is uh, is important and then also just the practice I think once kids are used to wearing it uh, and you know have are playing and doing different things while they're wearing them, they often will actually forget about it. Not every kid, obviously, and some of them are going to be bothered. But I think that, uh, you know, as we've heard throughout, we can't let 
perfect the enemy of good. So if we can get most kids to wear them properly, then we don't, if, if there's some issues, you know, we don't want to give up on, uh, on the majority of, of people being able to wear them successfully. See, as the uh, father of a three-year-old who absolutely refuses, I appreciate the tips. This is the kind of one-on-one stuff people need. Totally. You kind of touched on it at the very beginning uh, of this chat, but I also, while I have you here, wanted to ask you a little bit about um, the hospital itself. And, you know, you mentioned, and and we've all seen anybody watching the numbers in Ontario has seen cases uh, creep up quite quickly uh, over the last couple of weeks. And what sort of things uh, go into action at Michael Guerin when you start seeing that? And as you mentioned, people start getting a little concerned. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, we talk a lot about kind of risk levels. So depending on what the levels of community transmission are um, and the percent positivity for testing and, and what we're seeing, we'll adjust some of our policies in the hospital. So, um, you know, how many people get screened when they come in, um, you know, all of our isolation procedures are are routine and and we always do them, but really providing reminders that, you know, numbers are going up, you have to increase your vigilance. We have a lot of uh, ways where where we kind of implement redundancies so that we're less likely to miss any cases of COVID coming in, um, like daily or daily or or twice daily symptom checks for patients. Uh, And um, so a lot of those, you know, protocols just deciding, okay, we need to be on higher alert, right? And letting staff know that things are ramping up and we need to, to change things, making sure that we're aware of where the beds are available and that if we get a surge of patients, you know, where do we shift staff and how do we do that? Um, and I think another important part, which is important for schools, for hospitals, for everywhere, is just being vigilant about symptoms and infections in patients, but also in staff, because, I mean, as we saw in the first wave, there was a lot of cases of um, infections in staff, especially in long-term care. And then some of that is some of those people inadvertently brought those into nursing homes before we had universal masking and, and passed it on. Um, so, so reminding staff that even if you have mild symptoms, you really, you know, have to go get tested and you can't come to work um, and make, and, you know, we're all human. So over the summer, I think people took a little bit of a breather, started to, you know, open up their social networks a little bit more, and people are used to socializing a bit more freely. So really making sure that everyone is wearing their mask when they're in the building, unless they're eating. And if they're eating, they're, you know, with it, uh, maintaining physical distance. And and that's going to be important for schools too. So just making sure we're not um, lapsing into any bad habits. Um, also, I think, that, as we've said, the communication with staff, so making sure everyone knows where we're at and where we're going. Um, and then other small things like improving our turnaround time for swabbing for staff. So staff are off or they're sick or they have sick kids that we can make sure we are testing them efficiently so that we have enough staff um, and that people are encouraged to go get testing uh, if they are they are uh, they do have symptoms because we do expect you know as more in the first wave it was a bit easier because most people were at home so they they were having very minimal exposures outside of work but if everything's still being open uh, you know there's a lot more people being exposed and their kids going back to school so the, we're really aware that we're going to have to be more vigilant uh, in that regard this time and prepare for the possibility that more staff are going to you know have more community infections not from the hospital but from uh, from other interactions outside. So those are just a few of the things that are uh, on our mind on a daily basis. That's a good segue into my last question, which is I think that everybody would probably uh, agree that 
having schools open is really important, uh, both for for the kids' sake and for childcare. Um, but as we start to see cases in schools, is there a point at which you would really start to get worried that that outbreaks were happening and and there's a threshold where we need to talk about closing individual schools or or what will you be watching for i guess in schools as they reopen yeah i mean that's a great question and i, I in terms of i don't have a specific you know threshold where i think i think it's going to be probably a moving target and I, and my my biggest hope is i think we really everyone, the government, all of us has to prioritize schools. And so if that means we do have to pull back on closing other, you know, not opening other things or closing other businesses, then we may need to to do that in order to help keep schools safe. And I've explained to some people, because I think some people think that going back to school means, okay, there's no more social bubbles. It doesn't matter anymore because my kids are going to be exposed to everyone. And I almost think it's the opposite. You know, you have a you have a, so much social capital to spend and we're using that all up at schools. So now we need everybody to be kind of twice as careful outside of schools. So you're only seeing people you know, within your small bubble, your family within that six feet and without masks, and that we really need everyone to be on board with that. Um, I mean, in terms of what, in terms of if things, what I'm going to be watching for schools, I think it, it will probably be very regional. I, I think that the same approach won't be, it may not even be across the city, let alone across the, the province or the country. Um, but I'll be watching, the main thing I'll be watching is not just for cases in schools, but for transmission in the school, because we know that there will be cases introduced into schools. But as long as we find them and the prevention strategies are working, then that's good news. Um, It's when we start to see outbreaks, which would be two or more cases that are linked to each other. So one person spreads to another person within the school that's when then it's going to start to worry us. So we'll, we will see some of those, but if we're starting to see that in numerous schools or in numerous classes within the same school, then that's when I think we need to reevaluate and see, okay, well, can we improve the prevention strategies? And if we, if we can't improve the prevention strategies and we can't reduce the community transmission numbers because they are continuing to rise, then we're going to have to you know, have a really hard look at what's the, the balance here, what's the safest thing to do. Well, in the meantime, we will uh, keep listening to you guys and keep our fingers crossed that it really doesn't come to that. Thank you very much, Dr. McCready. Thank you very much. Dr. Janine McCready, infectious disease physician at Michael Guerin Hospital. That was The Big Story. You know where the rest of them are. They're at thebigstorypodcast.ca. They're also in your favorite podcast player, Apple or Google or Stitcher or Spotify. You pick. Go there, leave us a rating, leave us a review. If you want to talk to us, find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN or email us. The address is TheBigStoryPodcast at rci.rogers.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.